Hello and welcome to the Easy Agile podcast for 2021. Each episode, we talk with some of the most interesting people in tech, in agile, and in leading businesses around the world to share fresh perspectives and learn from the wealth of knowledge each guest has to share. Talking all things from building authentic workplace cultures to implementing agile, women in leadership and mindset. We have some amazing guests lined up this season, as well as trialing some different styles of conversations, and we can't wait to hear what you all think. So if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app. Let's jump into this month's episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Easy At Job podcast. Sean Blake here with you today, and we've got a great guest for you. It's Gerald Cadden, a strategic advisor and safe program consultant trainer at Scaled Agile Inc. Gerald is an experienced business and IT professional, strategic advisor and Scaled Agile program consultant trainer, SPCT at Scaled Agile. Thanks, Gerald. Welcome to the Easy Agile podcast. It's really great to have you on as a guest today. And uh, thank you for spending a bit of time with us and sharing your expertise with our audience on the Easy Agile podcast. So I'm really interested and I'm interested in this story that for all the guests that we have on the podcast but can you tell me a little about a little bit about your career today uh, I find that people find their way to these agile roles or the agile industry through so many diverse types of jobs in the past you know some people used to be plumbers or or tradies or they they worked in finance or in banking how did you find your way into working at somewhere like Scaled Agile. Good morning, Sean. Thanks, thanks for having me here, guys. I'm I'm very happy to be here with you guys today. You know, career things are always an interesting question. I'm 53, so when I look back, I, I do I, I wonder how do I get to where I am. And you can often look at just a series of, you know, like fortunate events. And you know, I worked in retail shoe stores, and then I decided to do something in my life. Did an IT diploma, then did a degree. And I started working in the IT side. I, I pretty much started as a developer because that was where the money was. And so that's where you wanted to go. But I was, you know, I didn't stay as a developer long. Okay, all right. I was a terrible developer. So I, I, I wasn't good at it. It was frustrating. Uh, I moved into some pre-sales work and that led me to doing business analysis. And I really liked the BA work because I got to work with people and see changes. I could work with the developers still, got to work really directly with the customer, which was much more interesting for me. So I spent a lot of time in BA doing the development work, working, doing business process re-engineering. I transitioned over to Rational Unified Process when it was around, spent countless hours writing use cases, doing UML diagrams, convincing people on how to make the changes on those. And then Agile came along and I had to make a complete brain switch. So all of this stuff that I'd learned and depended on as a BA suddenly disappeared because Agile didn't require that as an upfront way of working. It required that to be in the background if you wanted it. And it was more about collaboration. So about, about 2004, 2005, started working with Agile a lot more. By this time, I was living in the US. So that's where I got my Agile experience, stayed there for a long time, got great experience. And then I moved over to working with SAFE around 2011. The catalyst for that is I was working on a large, with a large financial firm in New York with a team there. And we were redesigning a large methodology for them to implement Agile at scale. 
went to a seminar in 2011 at an Agile conference, saw Dean Leffingwell's presentation on SAFE and just looked up and went, well, we can stop working on our methodology. It's done. <laughs> and so hardly after that meeting, I ran outside and tackled Dean Leffingwell because I wanted him to look at my diagrams and everything and give me some affirmation that I was doing the right thing. And, he, you know, he frankly, Dean, Dean's got a very frank face and he pulled his frank face and he looked at me and just said, you know what? just use safe. And I'm like, yeah, we will. And so I, I, I started my safe journey around that time. And we implemented at that financial company. And I've been on that journey ever since. So take us back 10 years ago to 2011. Um, and you're working at this financial company. You've heard of this concept of safe really for the first time, you started to implement it. How did the people at that company respond to you kind of bringing in this new this new way of thinking these new this new framework it sounded like you already had the diagrams on the frameworks and the concepts forming in your mind um did you find that a an easy process i think i already know the answer but how how, how complex was that to try and introduce safe for the first time into a, an organization of, of that magnitude yeah, this is a very large financial firm, um, a very old financial firm, so very traditional ways of working. So what's interesting is the same challenges SAFE comes up against today were there present before SAFE even began. And so the, the same challenges of the, the, the past management approaches trying to move to faster ways of working was still there. So we, you know, as we were furiously drawing diagrams in Visio, you know, trying to create models for people to understand. It was hard to create kind of a continuum of knowledge and education that would get people to move from the mindset they had to the mindset we wanted them to have. And it was an evolving journey for myself and the team that I was working with. I, I work with a really great guy called Al, and his name is Algona, you know, a very, very smart man. And so the two of us were always scratching our heads as to how to get the management to change their minds. And we focused on education, but it was still a big challenge. I kind of finished on the project as they started with SAFE. I moved to a different management role on the company, but we continued the work there. Michael Stump, uh, who used to work for Scale Agile. I think he works now at a different company, but he continued a lot of that work and did a really good job. And they, they did implement safe, they made changes, but they faced all the same challenges, the management mindset, overcoming, moving away from the, the silos to a more network structured organization. You know, just the tool, just the simple things were still a challenge and there's still a challenge today. You know, so the, the nature of the organization is still evolving, even in, in, even in the modern day agile world. You mentioned there that part of the challenge is around mindset and education. Have you found any shortcuts into how you change a team's mindset, the way they approach their work, the way that they approach working with other teams in that organisation? I assume it, the factor of success has a lot to do with has the team changed their mindset on the way they were working before and now committed to this new way of working. And can you talk to us a little bit about how do you go about changing a team's mindset? You know, I, I, maybe I'll change the direction of your question here because what I've found is usually you don't have to work too hard to change the mindset of a team. 
most of the teams are, are really eager to try new things and be innovative. You know, I've, you only come across some people in teams who maybe their career path has got them to a certain point where they're happy with the way the world is and they don't want to change. The, the, the mindset you really need to change is around the leadership space, and that's still true today. So the teams will readily adapt if management can create the environment that allows them to do it and if they can be empowered, you know. But it, it's really, if you want to enable the team, it's getting, getting the leadership around them to change their mindset, to change the structures that, you know, that, can, that are constraining the teams from doing the best job they can. And so that, that for me was the big discovery as you went along. And it's still true today. As Agile's been evolving, you know, I've noticed that people don't always put leadership at the top of the list of challenges. But for me, it's always been at that top of the list. A lot of people want to look at leadership and, you know, say things about them, you know, unflattering things. But you have to remember, these are human beings. And the best way to come to leadership is to really begin with a conversation, help, help them understand. They know that they know the challenges, but we need to help them understand what's causing the issues that are creating those challenges. As you work with them and educate them, you can begin to open their minds up a little more. Does that mean they'll actually change? Not necessarily. You know, political motivations, you know, ideologies, other things constrain leadership from moving. So, but conversations and education i think are the way to really approach leadership and getting to know them as a person take an interest in their challenges take an interest in them as an individual right so create that social bond is an important thing as, as a consultant that was always hard to do because as a consultant you're always seized an external force and it's hard to build that somewhat social relationship with that leadership and build that trust yeah that's so true isn't it i remember on an agile transformation that that I was on previously, our agile coach really would spend just as much time with the leadership team as they would with us, the agile team. And it seemed strange that that the coach was spending so much time trying to really coach the the leadership team on how they should think about this new way of working. But yeah, you, you put it in in the right context there. It's so important that they create that environment for their people and for their teams to feel safe in trying something new. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really important. I, I think if you looked at how safe, how safe evolved, how agile evolved, like, you know, when you look at the, the creation of the agile manifesto and its principles, and then the following frameworks like scrum, XP, et cetera, it evolved from a team perspective. So everybody, everybody made the assumption that, you know, we needed to, that, you know, we needed to create these things for the teams to follow, but, as people worked with teams, they found that it wasn't the teams at all. The teams adapt, but the management and the structures of the organizations are not adapting. And so that's that's really where it went. I, I can't I can't recall the number of countless Scrum implementations you worked on, and you just hit that ceiling of organizational challenges. And it was always very frustrating for the teams. I think there's a there's an opposite side to that too. Is that too many in the agile world just look at the teams as the center of the world? And you can't approach it from that way either. The teams are very important to delivering value to the customers, but it's the organization as a whole that delivers value. And I think you really have to sit back and just say the teams are part of that. How do we change the organization inclusive of the teams? Okay, that's really interesting. 
Um, Gerald, you, you've spoken a bit um, about teams and mindset and how do you, when you go into an organization, a big auto manufacturer or a big airline or a financial services company and they're asking for your help or they're asking for your training, how do you assess where that organization is up to um, what's their level of maturity from an agile point of view? Do you have organizations that are coming to you who have in their mind that they're ready to go safe and then you turn up on day one and it turns out no one has any real idea about what that type of commitment looks like? Yeah, I, I, it's a good question because I, th I think as I look back at my the history of this, you know, in 2011, 2012, when SAFE really got going, as you went forward, I mean, there was no we there was no concept of where to begin. You know, consultants were kind of just figuring it out for themselves. And like most consulting or most most methodologies, they got engaged at an IT space and at the team level. And people would try to grow from the team level upwards. And you know, at, at some point when you know, I struggled a lot with this because I was just trying to figure out where to step. So my consulting hat was always on to sit down, talk to people about their challenges, find a way to help figure out how to solve the challenges, whether it was going to be you know, Scrum or Safe or whatever it was going to be, right? Those are just tools in the toolbox. But, you know, when, when Scaled Agile, as I was working with, excuse me, as I was working with Safe, Scaled Agile brought out the, the implementation roadmap. It, it produced so much more clarity that came later in my time was safe and I wish it had come earlier because it really began to help me clarify, you know, that, that initial thing that we call getting over the tipping point, how to, how to work with the, the organization you're talking to, work with the right people, understand their challenges, help them understand what causes those problems, which is the, the more traditional ways of working, the traditional management mindsets, help them connect safe as a way to overcome those challenges and begin to show them. If you looked at the roadmap, you know, it's this contiguous step-by-step -step thing, but what you find in reality is there are gaps between those steps. And in those gaps is the time you, as a transitional team, are having lots of conversation with the management. If you put them through a training class, they're not gonna come out of the class going, oh, wow, that's it, we know what to do, right? It takes follow-up conversation. You have to have one-on-ones, one-on-many conversations, you know, re, re, you know, recover top, you know, cover topics again, so you can remove the assumptions or the sorry, the misassumptions. So it's a lot of that kind of work. That the roadmap is, it's there for those who are implementing Safe today. Use it. It's it is the mo one of the most helpful tools you'll have. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I think just acknowledging the difference between the tools in the toolbox and then the, the other fact that you're dealing with humans and you're dealing with attitudes and motivations and behaviors and habits there, there's yeah. two very different things there. You really, it sounds like you need to take them all together on that journey. Yeah. You know, I, I just as a aside to that, you know, we train so many SPCs like safe program consultants, right? We, we train them, we're churning them out of classes all the time with us and our partners. The thing that you can't, you know, you can teach them about the framework, but you can't necessarily teach them how to be a good consultant or a good, a good, you know, uh, I don't say, I, I use the term consultant and coach, right? Yes. Sometimes I like to say, uh, you know, a good consultant can be a good coach, but a good coach can't necessarily be a good consultant. 
because there's another world of knowledge you need to have. Like, how do you sit down and talk to executives? How do you learn the, you know, the patience and the kinds of questions you need to ask? How do you learn to build those relationships and understand how to work the politics? So there are things outside the knowledge of an SPC that they need to gain. So young people coming in, running to do this SPC course won't prepare you for everything, but it gives you the foundations. So when, when you're in an organization or you're coaching people to go back to their, their organization, how do, you, how do you teach them those coaching skills so that when they come in and um, you know, they've got to learn the politics They've got to identify the red flags. They've got to manage the, the dependencies. They've got to bring new teams onto the train. How do you, how do you go about equipping that more human and communication side of the, the toolbox, really? Well, I, th- I think, you know, you can obviously teach the fundamentals of the framework by running through the training courses, but mentoring for me is the way to go, right? Having Every time I teach a training class, I make it very clear to people when they go back and they're starting a transformation don't go this alone, you know, find experienced people that have done this and the experience shouldn't just be with safe. Their experience should be having worked with large organizations, you know, having experience with a portfolio level if necessary, simply because there, there are skills that people develop over years of their career. They don't have what the beginning. I mean, if I look back at some of the horrific things I had said in meetings in front of executives that my boss would look, put his hand up in front of his face because I was young and, and impulsive and immature, you know, and I see that today. So when I first came to the US, I worked with some younger BAs and they would say things in a meetings and you like quickly have to dance around some things to like, we didn't really want to say that right now. So I, I think mentoring is the skill, you know, we can teach you the, we can teach you the tactical skills, but teaching you the, um, the political skills, the, the human skills is something that takes mentoring and time. Mm-hmm. Mentoring is so important in that context, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's rewind 12 months ago to March, 2020, mm-hmm. um, a month that's probably burned into a lot of people's mind as the month that COVID changed our lives uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Uh, I know that we had, it, Easy Agile had a lot of content out there, articles about how to do remote PI planning, how to help your virtual teams work better together. And we didn't know that COVID was, was coming. We just saw this trend <laughs> happening in the workforce and we had this, this content available. And then I was checking our, our website analytics and we had this huge spike in, in what I assume were people in these companies trying to work out for the first time how to do PI planning virtually, how to keep very literally their release trains on the tracks in a time where people were were either, you know, leaving the state, working from home for the first time. It's really like someone someone dropped a bomb in, in the middle of, of these release trains and people mm. were scrambling on how we how are we going to do this virtually now. Yeah. Did you have a lot of questions at the time on you know, what, how are we going to do this and, and how have you seen companies respond to those challenges? Yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, being in Boulder, Colorado in January of 2020, you know, and I, I, I'd just come back from vacation in Australia and, you know, that's when COVID was coming around and you were hearing about things. And in January 2020, I was talking with my, my colleagues and we were wondering how bad this is going to be within months, you know, two months, the world was falling apart. 
And you know, for for us, I think I think a good way to tell that story is to tell what to look at what Scaled Agile did. We knew our business that was very reliant on our partner's success, and it still is today. And so, as we began to see, you know, the the physical world of PI planning and training, as we began to see that, you know, completely falling apart, the company had to quickly adapt. You know, we already had a set of priorities set for the PI, and we implement Scaled Agile internally in the company. Uh, we, at the time, we were kind of running the company as a train itself because it's, you know, 100, 170 odd people. So they had to reprioritize, you know, the, the different epics. Um, we pushed in new features and it was all about what do we need to change now to keep our partners afloat by getting them online. And, you know, really good team at Scaled Agile, you know, really cross company effort to get online materials, you know, short-term online materials created to keep the partners upright so they could keep teaching, they could find ways to do this, um, to do PI planning, to do their inspect and adapts all online. And so we pushed out a lot of material just simply in the form of PowerPoint slides that they could then incorporate into tools like Miro or Miro or, you know, our, our tool, um, you know, so we, you know, safe collaborate. So we we went about developing this and we've been maturing that over time. And so now we're in a world where we have a lot more stability. Uh, we saw we saw a big dip, you know, like everybody else. But the question is, are you going to come out of that dip? And so what we did notice within, you know, probably even the second quarter of that year, at the tail end of it, we saw it starting to come up again, which are our partners starting to teach more online. So the numbers told us that we the materials we're producing were working. So for us, it was just a great affirmation that organizing yourself the way we did organize ourselves the the quick way we could adapt saved us you know so scaled agile could have gone the way of a lot of companies and not been able to survive because our partners wouldn't have survived but we we had the ability to adapt so it's it's a great success story from my from my perspective well, that's great we're all glad you're still around to uh <laughs> yes we are story <laughs> and uh Gerald, whether you're reflecting on on companies you've worked with in the past, or maybe even that that internal scaled scaled agile example you just touched on, are there specific meetings or ceremonies or, or check in points that are really important as part of the agile release train process? Um, what are the things that really for you are mandatory or the most important elements that companies should really hold on to? um during during that really setup stage of trying to move towards the scaled agile approach so i interpret your question correctly i, I think for me when you're implementing right the, the the really important things to focus on um as a team is the first of all is the pi planning that is the number one thing right a lot it's the first one people want to you know change because it's two days long and everybody has to come and it costs it can cost companies a, a quite a significant sum of money to run that every 10 to 12 weeks and so you will run very quickly as i had in the past in in the in the car company you run very quickly into the financial controller who wants to understand why you're spending you know forty thousand dollars a uh, you know, a quarter on a big two-day meeting, you know, <laughs> and so they like, they start questioning every item on the bill, but it, that's the most significant one. PI planning is significant. But 
the inspect and adapt is the other one simply because at the end if you remove that 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 feedback cycle what we call closing the loop if you remove that then we have no opportunities to improve so those two those two events themselves create the bookends you know what we get started with and how we close the loop but there are smaller um, events that happen in between the team events are obviously all important but more significant for me is is the constant you know the event for the product management team you know or the program management team how are you going to refer to them excuse me who are going to need to get together on a regular basis to ensure that then we call this the sinks, right? So this is the art sink or the POPM sink. But you need to you need to make sure those are happening because those are these more dynamic feedback loops and ensure the good the progress of good architectural requirements or good, you know, good features coming through so that when you get to PI planning, the teams have significant things to work on. So if you had to give me my top three events, PI planning, inspect and adapt, and the, the you know, the art sync and the product PMPO sync. Awesome, awesome. Uh, I know there's always that temptation for, for teams to find the shortcuts and to find the workarounds where they don't have to do certain meetings or certain check-ins, but in terms of communication, it must be terribly important for these teams to make sure they're still communicating and they don't use the framework as an excuse to stop to stop meeting together and to stop collaborating yeah i mean i i went through when i when i started implementing at, at the car com, at this large car company in the us that i started I, was, I decided to rip the band-aid off right so they were they had several teams working on projects and they weren't doing well and when i decided that you know when i looked at the challenges and decided we're going to implement safe you know some of the management they were like are you crazy <laughs> you know why would you do this and so but they trusted me and so you know we did rip the band-aid off and we formed them all into an art you know we launched that art and i remember at the end of the pis some of the some of the management who had a lot of doubts were coming up after they sat through the pi and they said they just couldn't believe how great that was wow. even though the first pi was a little chaotic <laughs> You know, they understood the the work and the collaboration, the alignment, just the the discussions that took place were far more powerful for them. You know, and teams were teams were happier. They were walking out to a different environment, so it changed the mood a great deal. So I, I think I, I think the teams, their ability to be heard, is one of the most significant places is during PI planning. They get that chance to be heard. They get that chance to participate rather than just be at the end where they're told what to do. Mm. So it really empowers the team. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, absolutely. That's great. So as, as a company moves out of the implementation phase and becomes a little bit more used to the way of doing things, how do they then go about, what's the best way for them to go about communicating that progress to the wider organization and then really evangelizing this way of working to try and get more teams on board and, and more agile release trains set up so that it's really a whole company approach. Yeah, good, good question. So I, I think first of, first of all, the system demo that we do. So the regular system demos that take place, this is an event where you can invite people to. So when you get to the end of the program increment, you know, the 10, 12, or the 8, 10 or 12 weeks, and you're doing your PI system demo, that's a chance for you to invite people that may be in the organization who are next on the list, yeah. and they're going to be doing this, or they're curious, or if you have, you know, external suppliers who you're trying to get on board as part of the train, have them come. 
you know, have them come to these events so they can just participate, they can see what goes on, and it takes away some of the fear of what that stuff is, you know, gives them more information. So the system demo, whether you do it, you know, during the PI, but definitely the, the PI system demo at the one at the end, you want that one. Some more ad hoc things, and one of the things that I've seen organizations really fail to do is when they're having success, the leadership around the train need to go out and, I hate the term evangelize, but go out and show the successes. You know, get out and talk about this at the next company meeting, present where they were and where they are now. But, you know, as part of that, don't show just the, just the, uh, the metrics that show, you know, greater delivery of value, show the human metrics show how the team went from, you know, maybe a certain level of, you know, disgruntlement <laughs> to, you know, maybe feeling happier and getting better feedback, show how the business and technology have come closer together because they're able to collaborate and actually produce value together rather than being at odds because the system makes them at odds. Awesome, awesome. Gerald, is there anything else you'd like to, to share with our audience before we wrap up the episode? Any any tips or words of encouragement or perhaps some advice for those who are considering uh, scaling up their, their agile teams? I think, I think the, the one piece of advice, I, again, I'll reiterate back to an early point I made is as, as you are going through the implementation process and you're starting to launch a train and train your teams, figure out how you're going to support them when you launch putting people through an SPC class or through all the other classes will not, they won't come out safe geniuses, right? They'll have knowledge and they'll have the enthusiasm and, and they'll have some trepidation as well, but you need good coaching. So figure out as you're, as you're beginning the implementation pattern where you're designing the teams, et cetera, figure out what your coaching pattern is going to be. Hire the people with the knowledge and experience, work with a partner with the knowledge and experience. You know, they shouldn't stay there forever. Um, if you work with consultants, right? Their job should be to come in and empower you not to stay there, you know, permanently. But without that coaching uh, and, and coaching over a couple of PIs, your teams tend to run into problems and go backwards. So to keep that momentum moving forward, for me, it's figure out the coaching pattern. The only other one I would say to you is make sure that you get good collaboration between product, you know, the people who are going to be in the product management role and architecture. Get rid of their grievances. We'll have them work together um, because those can stifle you. You know, get in and talk about the environments before you launch. You don't want funny problems when you, you know, oh, the architecture is terrible. We oh, okay, let's talk about that before we launch. So just a couple of things that I think are really important things to focus on before you launch the train. Awesome. I really appreciate that, Gerald. I, I've actually learned a lot in our chat around it's the same challenges that, that you had 10 years ago. It's the same challenges that we have today. The Really, the core of it is the challenge of how do you focus on the mindset change. Yeah. We've talked about that teams are eager to change. There might be a few grumbly voices along the way, but really it's about leadership providing a welcoming and safe environment to foster that change. Yep. And the difference between being a coach and a consultant, the importance of mentoring. Wow, Zach, we actually covered a lot of ground, didn't we? Uh, I, I, may, I may get some hate mail for that comment, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. <laughs> Thanks so much, Gerald, for joining us on the Easy Agile podcast. And we appreciate you sharing your expertise with with us and the the audience for the podcast thanks very much happy, ha happy to do it anytime thanks for having me here today thanks.
ですよ。